Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea, and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to, to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. So the title of this evening's message is Wonder Worker or Son of God. Wonder Worker or Son of God. There's a story told of Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. They decide to go on a camping trip. And after dinner and a bottle of wine, they lay down in their tent and go to sleep. Some hours, hours later, Holmes awoke and nudged his faithful friend. Watson, look up and tell me what you see. Watson replied, I see millions of stars. What does that tell you? Watson pondered for a minute. Astronomically, it tells me that there are millions of galaxies and potentially billions of planets. Astrologically, I observe that Saturn is in Leo. Horologically, I deduce that the time is approximately a quarter past three. Theologically, I can see that God is all-powerful and that we are small and insignificant. Meteorologically, I suspect that we will have a beautiful day tomorrow. What does it tell you, Holmes? Holmes was silent for a minute, then spoke. Watson, you idiot, someone has stolen our tent. So we see there two different people with two different perspectives and two different perceptions. What one notices, the other is unaware of. What one sees so clearly, the other misses it altogether. Like the story, tonight we're gonna see two different groups and two different responses to Jesus. One group notices Jesus, the other is unaware. One group sees so clearly while the other misses it altogether. We'll see that one group gets it while the other group doesn't. So let's just pretend that Jesus was alive today and he was on social media. With his growing popularity, his followers or his likes and subscribers would be off the charts. He would be on top of all the charts because Jesus, in this point of the story of Mark, is viral. He's trending. And most of the internet is tuned in to what Jesus is going to do next. However, there's a group that wants to ban his account. They want to delete his social media presence. These are the people who leave negative reviews, dislikes, and post hate, hate, hate thing, hateful things and are hostile toward Jesus. But they have yet to find anything to actually discredit him. This group is obviously opposed to Jesus. And then within the rest of the followers, there's a majority that isn't necessarily opposed to Jesus, but aren't really highly desirous, desirous of him either. This group is dangerous in their, own, in their own rights. This is what we can call the superficial followers. These are the ones who want something to see until there's no longer anything to see. Fickle, selfish, shallow followers who just want to be part of the crowd. On social media, people like, follow, and subscribe for different reasons. And likewise, when it comes to Jesus Christ,
People follow for various reasons. But truth be told, you can be following Jesus and not actually be following him. You can be deceived into thinking that you, you get it, but in actuality, you don't get it. And you may think you know him, but does he know you? Because the thing is, you can profess Christ while serving yourself. There's always the danger of being a walking contradiction, and it comes down to, do you want Jesus for who he is, or do you want Jesus for what he can give to you? Are you desperate for a relationship with Jesus, or are you desperate for him to help meet your own needs? The thing is, we, most of us struggle in the Christian life because we're after the wrong things. We strive for self rather than strive to be more like Christ. We like what Jesus offers. We love the benefits associated with Christ, but we don't really care to know him or to be like him. We don't want to fully commit our lives to him. And something to think about, if someone other than Jesus were to offer to you everything you ever wanted, would you follow them? If someone other than Jesus offered to you every single thing that you ever wanted, would you follow them? Christianity isn't about self, about what you want or what you desire or what you can be. It's about who Christ is, what Christ wants for you, what Christ desires for you, and what he can make you to be. So we shouldn't want a Jesus who meets our selfish wants, needs, and desires. We should want a Jesus who changes us to be more like him. And my hope tonight is that you would have honest answers to these questions. Who is Jesus? Which takes into account your view of him. Why do you follow him? Meaning your reasons and your motives. And what kind of follower are you? A true follower or a superficial follower? We're gonna see two different responses to Christ that will demonstrate who gets it and who doesn't get it so that you'll recognize Jesus for who he really is. So those are the two headings for tonight. Who, who doesn't get it, verses 7 to 10, and who gets it, verses 11 and 12. So the first one, who doesn't get it, verses 7 through 10. So like I said earlier, opposition toward Jesus is at an all-time high. The Pharisees are no longer having it with Jesus. They've had enough of him. In fact, they've teamed up, if you remember from, from last message, they've teamed up with an enemy group because that group also hates Jesus. And now, bonded by a common target, their sights are set on destroying Jesus. And last time we learned that Jesus healed a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath day. And what, what took place in the synagogue that day exposed the Pharisees for their strict keeping of man-made laws to the neglect of human need and benefit. And the religious leaders were silenced. They knew it was better to do good and save life rather than to do harm and kill life. But they couldn't utter a response because they would face consequences no matter how they answered Christ. And through this, Jesus was providing an opportunity for the, Pharisees to, for the Pharisees to turn from their empty religion and turn to him. However, as you know, nothing Jesus said or did was having any effect on their self-righteousness. 
their hearts remained unchanged before the one who was able to change their hearts. And in their eyes, they weren't in need of righteousness because they were, they were the example of it. They were the example of righteousness. Jesus, the true righteous one, was gaining massive popularity with the people. His authority was unmatched and his miracles were undeniable. And this is what the Pharisees couldn't swallow. And so they're out to destroy Jesus. And we pick up in verse 7. Jesus withdraws with his disciples to the sea. And we're told in, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 15, that Jesus was aware of their plot to kill him. And just something to note here is that Jesus didn't withdraw out of fear. We know he wasn't intimidated by the Pharisees and the scribes. But Jesus withdrew because he was on a mission that wasn't yet complete. In other words, his time had not yet come to be delivered over. God's redemptive plan was simply moving forward at this point. And it's important to ask here, who's with Jesus? We're, set, we're told he's with his disciples. And so far, we know that Jesus is called Simon, Andrew, James, John, and Levi, also known as Matthew. That's five, right? But Mark, Mark, he doesn't add the calling of Philip and Nathaniel in his gospel. But according to John chapter 1, verses 35 to 51, Jesus also called Philip and Nathaniel to be, be his disciples. So at this point where Jesus is withdrawing with his disciples, there are seven with him. Philip, Nathaniel, Simon, Andrew, James, John, and Levi. And just a quick note here. We... Here, we also see something very important, the cost and commitment of discipleship. Jesus' ministry has been opposed by the religious leaders. There's hostility and hatred against Jesus. There's a death warrant out for Christ. And Mark here, he notes for us that Jesus and his disciples are together. The disciples are still with Jesus, although people want to kill Jesus. And it would be very easy to just deny Christ and leave, call it quits on Christ. They, you know, they can be thinking, I don't want to die. This isn't worth it. I'll just go back home and live in peace and safety. But that's not what we see here. The disciples and Jesus are together. They're committed. and They haven't left Jesus. And that's just something for us to remember, that we need to live for Jesus and not for ourselves. Next, while Jesus is wildly unpopular with the religious leaders he's wildly popular with the crowds he's popular with the people mark tells us there's a great crowd that followed and in it's actually two great crowds the first crowd is from galilee this is where most of jesus's ministry has been taking place so far the great multitudes from galilee many of whom probably were, were first-hand witnesses to the works of christ so that means this crowd from Galilee, they would have seen Jesus cleanse a leper. They would have seen Jesus heal a paralytic who was let down from the roof. They would have seen Jesus heal the man with a withered hand. We would call that crowd the local crowd, the crowd from Galilee. And when it says that this great crowd followed, it doesn't mean that they were followers of Jesus in the, in the way that the disciples were. It just means that they were walking behind him. They were following him. They wanted to see what he would do next. They wanted to witness more amazing works that Jesus was doing. And those who had diseases wanted to be healed. 
That's the first crowd. The second crowd was coming to Jesus from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. Right, we're given a list of these regions and locations. So Jesus wasn't just popular locally, but crowds came from outside of Galilee, from everywhere. And Jesus' name and fame were expanding far and wide. Judea was in the south, and even further south was Idumea. And others came from the east, from beyond the Jordan. Tyre and Sidon was northwest of Galilee. So like bees swarming around a hive, people from every direction were swarming to Jesus. The size of this crowd was massive. Estimates have the numbers in the thousands. And along with that, the distance traveled to come to Jesus wasn't a walk around the block. Idumea was 120 miles away. Tyre and Sidon was 50 miles away. And you have to understand this wasn't a time with transportation like we have now. You couldn't just call a taxi or an Uber to come pick you up and take you to Jesus. It, was get in your, it wasn't get in your cars and drive. It was put on your sandals and walk. This journey didn't take hours. It took days and weeks for all of these people to get to Jesus. And why make such a long trek? Why, what, why make such a long trek? Look at the end of verse 8. The great crowd heard all that Jesus was doing, and so they came to him. Most of the local first crowd, they saw what Jesus did. This second crowd from further away, they heard what Jesus did. Jesus' fame had spread. Reports about Jesus made its way to them. The basis of his popularity was on the wondrous works he was doing. There's a wonder worker healing the sick, cleansing lepers, restoring withered hands, healing paralytics. This man has great power, and we keep hearing reports of this Jesus, and the results are real. People have seen, and people have told. So we see this buzz around Jesus. The people were attracted to him. They were interested in Jesus because they found in him someone who had the power and ability to heal them. They probably thought to themselves, all the pain, suffering, discomfort, Jesus can take that all away. We can have our health back. We can have our lives back. We must get to Jesus so our diseases could be healed. So they recognize his power and his authority. And this Olympic-sized crowd came from all over because they heard what Jesus was doing. And they believed it. They believed he could help them. And so no distance was too far for this group to come to Jesus. The reports were too good to pass on the opportunity. They were desperate for healing. And Jesus, they heard, was the one who could heal them. So the crowds were growing so much so that Jesus tells his disciples to have a boat ready. Look at verse 9. Jesus told them to have a boat ready for him so that he wouldn't get crushed. We're not told here if he actually used the boat or not, but it was ready and available if the situation called for it. You can just think of it's similar to a celebrity or a person of power having a car ready in case they need to make a quick exit. And although the crowd was attracted to Jesus' works, they were a distraction to his ministry and mission. Healing masses of people wasn't what Jesus wanted to do. It wasn't what his ministry was about. 
He offered so much more than healing to people. And that's what makes verse 10 so amazing. In verse 10, we see the compassion and power of Jesus. Jesus didn't need to heal. He could have just moved on to another area. His primary mission was preaching anyways. It wasn't healing. But he stays with the crowd and heals not some of them, but he heals everyone who came to him. Matthew 12, 15, and many followed him and he healed them all. Luke 6, 19, the crowd sought to touch him for power came out from him and healed them all. And the word diseases can be translated afflictions, plagues, or scourges. So this is, these are more severe uh, sufferings, not, not um, light afflictions. It, was, it describes painful, agonizing, physical ailments and illnesses. And this is why they traveled so far to come to Jesus. We're told next that they pressed around Jesus to touch him. They pressed around Jesus to touch him. The crowds weren't lined up single file like, like kids in a lunch line. This was uncomfortable crowding, like too many people in an elevator. And Mark tells us they were falling upon Jesus in order to touch him. So we see again, they believed and they were convinced that Jesus could heal them. But instead of waiting for Jesus to touch them, they were pressing around him, crowding him, literally falling upon him in order to touch him instead. Everyone who had diseases wanted healing. And you can imagine hundreds, if not thousands of people trying to get to one person. And I just picture like Black Friday, a lineup of people and once they open the doors, everyone mad rushes in, in chaos. No social distancing. A touch is what they're after. This crowd, all they wanted was a touch. A healing touch was all they wanted and it was all that they came for. Their belief in Jesus' healing power was as far as their belief went. They didn't have true saving faith. This crowd, look back at verse eight, this crowd heard what Jesus was doing and came to him. They didn't care about what Jesus preached and taught. They didn't care about the message of the kingdom of God. They only cared what he could do. They didn't care about who he was. They treated Jesus like a spare tire or an emergency kit, like some kind of lifeline. And they, the crowds were so amazed by his wonders, but they knew very little about who was in their midst. They didn't even scratch the surface of the significance of Jesus Christ. And this is the sad part. People have flocked to Jesus for healing, not for salvation. And they were drawn to Jesus for the wrong reasons. He offers forgiveness of sins and eternal life, but that's not what, that's nothing when, when they're suffering and in pain. What's in most important for them is getting healed of their physical disease. And we see clearly here who doesn't get it. We know the religious leaders don't get it. They don't know who Jesus truly is. And here we find out that the crowds also don't get Jesus. You know, the coronavirus has brought many changes to the way that we interact with people. It's getting a little bit better now, but in the beginning, people were doing meetups and staying in their cars. 
people visiting their friends and they're only able to stand on the, on the front porch to talk. Grandparents visiting their grandchildren, they have to read books to them through a window. And sitting in church with another family six feet away, unable to touch or make contact with them. You know, going to school, you have to stay at your desk in your taped off square. And having interaction, but not really having interaction. As many of you already know, Kat and I, we moved here from California a little over a year, maybe a year and a half ago. We left friends and family and started our life here in Canada. And the hard part is that we're 2,500 miles away from family and friends. But the, ev- the, the even harder thing is having friends here in Canada that we need to be distanced six feet from when normally we could just be hanging out with no, no distance between us. That's the harder part. It's harder to be so close to someone yet so far away. So what's the point? The crowds were so close to Jesus yet so far. The people don't know who it is that's before them. They don't recognize who Jesus is. They only see him as a wonder worker. These Jesus fans aren't true followers. He's appealing, but not worth adoring. He's exciting, but not worth exalting. And they've traveled miles and miles to come to Jesus, yet they don't get that far. They've come so close, yet are so far away. And they had so much belief in what Jesus could do, yet they were so unaware of what Jesus could do. They only wanted their diseases healed. And with that, they were satisfied. And that day, they would be healed. And that day, they would return to their homes, still in need of the most important thing. What a shame to come close, to come so close, and then to turn around and go back home. Did they not know what Jesus can do to heal the body? Did they not know that what Jesus can do to heal the body shows what he can do to, to their soul. These shallow crowds were okay with their bodies being whole while their souls remained untouched. The people only came for physical help, not for spiritual blessing. So what do you want? Physical wholeness or spiritual salvation? The crowds wanted physical healing, temporary satisfaction. They didn't get who Jesus was. They missed the point. Christ was before them and they can't see further than their diseases. They love the healing, but they can't see the one who heals, the healer. They were desperate for healing, but not desperate for Jesus. A true follower of Christ is after Christ himself, not what Christ can provide. So what do you, what do, you do when things aren't working out? You tend to pray more. You tend to go to Jesus when you're in a mess. You might even come to church with a sense of desperation. Perhaps you start reading large portions of your Bible. You're in a crisis and all of a sudden Jesus becomes very important to you. Well, then what happens when things are resolved? When the crisis is gone? You go back living your own life again, not any closer to knowing Jesus. 
because you're not interested in worshiping Jesus, you're only interested what Jesus can do for your situation. And guess what? You miss out on what he can, what he can really do for your situation, which is drawing you to himself and making you more like him. The cr crowds were consumed with secondary things and missed the main thing. Jesus didn't come to attract and to heal. He came to call and save sinners. So for application, since Jesus is more than a wonder worker, we must not view him that way. So how do you view Jesus? What is your response to him? What are you after? Augustine said, far better to touch him by faith than to touch him with the hand alone. And we can ask, isn't it faith in Christ that makes someone well? If you remember Jesus' words to the woman who had a blood discharge of 12 years, in Mark 5.34, Jesus says to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. It's faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ that makes you well. True faith isn't partial faith, and it's, it's going all in. It's a sincere faith that's, that trusts in Christ alone. So are you interested in who he is? Are you interested in following him? The large crowds followed Christ, but didn't understand who he was or what his mission was. The crowds were attracted to Christ by their own desires, namely healing, but they weren't devoted to him. They wanted to touch him, get healed, and go on with life. And what a wasted opportunity for this large crowd, coming to Jesus and remaining outsiders to him. So don't be a crowd-type follower, be a Jesus follower. Get to know him by reading the very place he has revealed himself, the word of God. You can't know Christ apart from his word, just like a fish can't breathe outside of water, or a bird can't fly without wings. It's that important. It's that critical. The ones who don't get it are the ones who assume, most often are the ones who assume that they get it. Are you assuming a relationship with Jesus or are you assured of your relationship with Jesus? So that's the crowd. The crowds didn't get it. Let's look next at who gets it. Verse 11, verses 11 and 12. So Jesus didn't only heal those with diseases, he also cast out unclean spirits. The crowd saw Jesus as a wonder worker, but the question here is, what did the unclean spirits see? What did the unclean spirits see? Look at verse 11. What do they call Jesus? The Son of God. They get it. The unclean spirits, the demons, get it. What a contrast from the crowds we just talked about. The demons knew who Jesus was. The crowds saw Jesus, but didn't recognize him for who he really was. The demons saw Jesus and recognized his true identity. The crowds fell upon Jesus, but demons, look at verse 11, fall down before Jesus. Fell upon Jesus, the demons fall down before Jesus. This was the authority of Jesus over Satan and demons. And the word fall before is a picture of an inferior prostrating themselves in reverence before a superior. 
to fall down before someone was also a posture of defeat. The demons knew their place. Jesus has full authority over them, and that's why whenever they saw Jesus, or every time they beheld him, as often as they saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. That's the kind of power and authority that Jesus possesses. Demons didn't just recognize Jesus as the son of God. When Jesus cast, out them, cast them out, they fled under his authority. And when he told them to be quiet, they obeyed him. The demons quite possibly were Jesus' most vicious enemies, yet here we find out that they were constrained to submit to his commands. Does that make you wonder who Jesus is? Who possesses such authority? Who could banish both demons and disease? A wonder worker or, or the son of God? If you remember in chapter 1, verses 21 to 28, Jesus healed a man with an unclean spirit. The unclean spirit recognized Jesus as the Holy One of God, and Jesus rebuked them, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit had no option but to obey the command of Jesus. That's what we're told in verse, verse 27. It says, And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And just a few verses after this, we're told in verse 34, And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So this isn't the first time Jesus has interacted with unclean spirits. And this isn't the first time he orders them not to make him known. And this was a serious warning, an earnest rebuke from Christ. So why did Jesus strictly warn the unclean spirits not, not to make him known? Why didn't Jesus want the demons to leak information on who he was? There's a couple of things to be said about this. Jesus doesn't need the help of demons to make him known. Jesus is so holy, he has nothing to do with evil, impure, unclean spirits. It wouldn't be fitting to allow or permit corrupt and filthy demons to proclaim him. Jesus doesn't work with Satan and demons. And Jesus wanted no truth to come from the demonic realm. Another thing is Jesus knows that until the cross and until his death, he won't be truly understood. The time hasn't yet come for such public confessions of his true identity. In other words, Jesus will make himself known when the time is right. The demons affirmed the uniqueness, the uniqueness of Jesus' nature. They knew Jesus to be the Son of God. They knew him to be the long-awaited Messiah, the anointed one, the Son of David, the Son of God. So again, who gets it? Interestingly, to this point in Mark, only God the Father and the unclean spirits fully understand Jesus's true identity. Also very interesting is that what the unclean spirits acknowledge as a fact that Jesus is the son of God, the religious leaders didn't even consider that as a possibility. The crowds saw a wonder worker, the unclean spirits saw the son of God. 
But at the end of the day, both groups didn't know the blessing of salvation found only in Jesus Christ. As we know, knowledge by itself is useless. We can't just know about Jesus, we must know Jesus. And we can't just look to Jesus in our times of need to bail us out. We must live for Jesus every moment of every day. We can't just want things from Jesus, we must worship him. So application, since Jesus Christ is the Son of God, we must view him that way. So what should your response be? Thankfulness, because Jesus Christ saves sinners. Rejoicing, because Jesus forgives sin. Humbleness, because Jesus saves by his grace, not based on anything you do. Submission, because Jesus is Lord. Obedience, because Jesus makes us who we can't be on our, on our own. And it's far better to be in with Jesus than in with the crowds. So may you know more of Jesus Christ in his word so that you may worship him more with your whole being. May you live more and more for Jesus and less and less for yourself. May Christ become greater and you become lesser. So we've seen the two groups, who gets it and who doesn't get it. You must seek Jesus himself not the things he offers. Seek him not as a means to an end, but as the end itself. Don't be like a child who loves the gifts, but not the giver. Love Jesus by desiring him, not only his gifts. You must follow Jesus, the Son of God, as, a, as disciples and not as a wonder worker. Jesus is more than a wonder worker, more than a miracle worker. He's more than your highest thoughts of him. He's the son of God, God in the flesh. So perhaps it's time to take your eyes off, off of yourself. Perhaps you've attached too much of your life to your sense of well-being. Perhaps you're the most important person in your life. Don't be distracted away from your purpose in life, which is to glorify God. So may you continually confess and repent of self-sufficiency, self-righteousness, self-absorption, -absorp selfishness, and continually run to Christ for forgiveness and grace to change your heart. And if you don't know Jesus Christ, don't let another day go by. Don't let the sun rise and set another day without responding in faith to Jesus. Come to Christ. It costs you nothing. The offer of salvation is free. You don't have to travel thousands of miles to be healed of your sin sickness. Jesus is the great physician of the soul. Repent of your sins and trust in Christ alone for salvation. John Calvin says, he who does not perceive Christ to be God is blind amidst the brightness of noonday. So don't be blind to the only one who can save you. Don't be blind to the only one who can forgive sins. And don't be blind to the Son of God. And if you do know Christ, have you been blind to the true Jesus? I asked three questions at the beginning, and I'll ask them again. Who is Jesus? Talking about your view of him. Why do you follow him? Your reasons and your motives. What kind of follower are you? 
true or superficial. Commit yourself to Christ no matter the cost of following him. And know the grace and mercy of God that continues to sanctify you as you depend on the Holy Spirit to change you. Know the goodness and love of God that never fails. Know the Son of God who came and died for you. Love him and live for him. Let's pray.